0: Hear ye, hear ye. These are the laws of the championships of Wimbledon for the year of our Lord, 2021. Rule number one. Competitors must be dressed in suitable tennis attire that is almost entirely white, and this applies from the point at which the player enters the courts around. Rule number two. White does not include off-white or cream. Rule number three. There should be no solid mass or panel of colouring. A single trim of colour around the neckline and around the cuff of the sleeves is acceptable, but must be no wider than one centimetre. Rule number four. Colour contained within patterns will be measured as if it is a solid mass of colour and should be within the one centimetre guide. Logos formed by variations of material or patterns are not acceptable. Rule number five. The back of a shirt, dress, tracksuit top or sweater must be completely white. Rule number six. Shorts, skirts and tracksuit bottoms must be completely white except for a single trim of color down the outside seam. No wider than one centimeter. Rule number seven. Caps, including the underbill, headbands, bandanas, wristbands, and socks must be completely white except for a single trim of color no wider than one centimeter. Rule number eight. Shoes must be almost entirely white. Soles and laces must be completely white. Large manufacturers' logos are not encouraged. The grass-court shoes must adhere to the Grand Slam rules. See Appendix 1. In particular, shoes with pimples around the outside of the toes shall not be permitted. The foxing around the toes must be smooth. Rule number 9. Any undergarments that either are or can be visible during play, including for reasons of perspiration, must also be completely white, except for a single trim of color no wider than one centimeter. In addition, common standards of decency are
1: required at all time. I found myself wondering, who is responsible for establishing the common standard of decency when it comes to acceptable undergarments at Wimbledon? Surely this standard must be established via careful process and intentional design. In the course of my research, I have uncovered the men and women responsible for maintaining the sanctity of center court, the tireless, selfless individuals who protect the people of the world from unseemly, suggestive, dare I say, pornographic sports bras and jockstraps that the major fashion brands continually try to foist upon an unsuspecting public. The Bureau of Undergarment Mores, or BUM, as they like to call themselves, take their responsibilities very seriously. According to Colton Sedgwick III, Grand Chairfather of the BUM, requests for preview underwear are solicited months in advance. A painstaking, multi-stage process of evaluating these garments in real-world situations occupies the nights and weekends of the BUM, who work tirelessly without a paycheck, for the good of the game. In order for the undergarments to be properly vetted, a rigorous evaluation of cultural norms and fashion trends must be performed. Dozens of assistants scour underwear videos on YouTube, pour through piles of recent fashion magazines, and watch reality television attempting to undercover, no pun intended, the most racy and salacious wardrobe malfunctions of the year gone by. Once this offline research has been completed, a 10-point scale is established, an objective measurement of undergarment titillation factor, and the field work can begin. Scores of young athletes are brought into the Wimbledon practice facility and asked to perform a variety of shots designed to stretch the live young models into potentially risque positions. The overhead smash, the diving slice at the net, the tweener lob, The dedicated BUM associates carefully review video footage and mark their scorecards based on their state of arousal during play. Every year, at least three or four potentially offensive undergarments are rejected thanks to the sacrifice of these unknown protectors of our sacred cultural standards. As someone who cares deeply about the sacred traditions of Wimbledon and understands the importance of an arbitrary dress code as a way of establishing clear divisions between the well-to-do members of an elite tennis club and the regular people stuffing their faces with strawberries and cream courtside, I want to express my most profound gratitude for the BUM. If I want to be excited by a human body, I will do so in the privacy of my own home and not while watching Breakfast at Wimbledon. So Matt, you were, you were telling me about John Millman's underwear? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a semi-famous story now, because
2: um, everything has to be white, including the underwear if it ever gets visible, including due to reasons of perspiration. So the perspiration can unlock the previously invisible underwear. Uh, And that that happened to John because he's his kit was like, you know that all the new kits roll out for Wimbledon because they have to have pure white and I don't know he's he's with Lotto or um, whoever he he was with they produced really thin Mm. shorts and uh, His underwear was was visible and it they weren't white underwear. So he had to he calls his dad the Fox And he tweeted about it, uh, so I got the fox to go into town and get me some underwear, um, some white underwear, and I I guess he got the underwear in time to be able to play his match. Right. I mean, what would have happened? I guess he could have...
1: you reckon you you could play in a towel? (laughs) (laughs) A white towel? Only if um, if you have a a really reliable white clip to uh, hold the towel in place.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or you just decided, like you said to your opponent, look, until the underwear arrives, can we just play like some real
1: 1880s gentlemen's tennis? (laughs) 1880s gentlemen's tennis. That means (laughs) free-balling. not what I meant. It's like before the Freemasons. There were the free ballers of 1880. I meant the less vigorous type of tennis,
2: so sort of drinking a cup of tea in one hand and sort of just paddling
1: the ball over the over the net. I see. Um, so tell me, Matt, how do you, how do you feel about the Wimbledon all whites rules and regulations? Well.
2: Um... You know, if you listen to the rules and regulations, um, yeah, it gives very little wriggle room. There's, um... No... There's not a lot you can do. You've got that one centimeter of color that you can put in a few places. Um, But because there's only one tournament of all the tournaments,
1: i don't i don't mind it it's kind of a it's an interesting quirk yeah i find myself appreciating the quirk a little bit more even though it's like obviously rooted in this stuffy old lawn club right elitist part of tennis that i don't know i feel like it would be better if tennis kind of moved away from that in general and Mm. uh became uh you know a sport of the people in a way um, but I do, you know, I'm, I appreciate the pageantry. I think I like that there's this sort of arbitrary rule that everybody has to follow. And it's not as if the the kits don't have personality. You know, the the cut of the cloth, the stitching of the fabric, there's a lot of subtlety that comes into play. And not all white kits look the same, even though generally It's true that just everybody's wearing white. Yeah. And maybe it's like, as I get a little older, I find some kind of comfort in the tradition. I I can't imagine they'll ever undo it. There's something about the fact that it's like, tennis is perceived as a very white sport. Um, White in the skin color, racial identity fashion. And the most prominent tennis tournament in the world takes place in the United Kingdom at a country club. Where everybody must wear white. There's something about that that feels not very 21st century to me.
2: Oh no, not at all. Yeah, it's uh, it's um, so they're stuck in the past, and but I think they, you know, they trade on that brand. You know, like this um, old old time. You know, the strawberries and cream. You know, is synonymous with Wimbledon. The uh, royalty come and visit Centre Court. Mm. It really does reveal the class origins. Um, of tennis it's a sport of the elite and that rule of having all white was because in the 1880s it was considered unseemly to have any perspiration marks Mm. so they chose white because it would show the perspiration less if you look into that more it's like
0: the
2: the the upper classes they they shouldn't have to work you know they shouldn't have to (laughs) you know make themselves Mm. sweat they have servants and slaves. To do that for them so um yeah the origins are actually really ugly <laughs> but, yeah <laughs> and there's probably just really no way of defending it i but uh, <laughs> you know except, except for breaking the whole thing down and getting rid of the british monarchy and installing a, a committee of regular people to run the, the thing and then if they decided you know but we would still like to keep it the garments all white for this one tournament, you know, and then just have a, a fun thing where you, you see how creative you can be with your outfits, with those restrictions. Sure. But I, I don't think a committee like that would keep the rule. I think they need these old fogies, these, you know, people with links <laughs> to royalty and stuff to, to maintain that, um, iconic tradition of the all white at the mm-hmm. all England club.
1: I think it would be fun also if like every year uh wimbledon just chose a new color you know like oh, this year wimbledon will be played entirely in orange <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that would be good so we just kind of spread spread things around there's like a big color wheel and at the beginning of the grass court season they uh they have this ceremony kind of like the draw ceremony where you know the queen comes out and spins the color wheel And uh, that's that's how that's how we decide what people wear at Wimbledon.
2: And the peasants rejoiced for the color this year would be black and it never had been black before.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of ways uh, that the People's Committee of Tennis Tournament regulations could uh, could potentially take things. So we'll see how that goes in the future.
2: Mm. Yeah, you know, they have been more lenient in previous years, like in the 80s. Like Pat Cash won Wimbledon in '87. He was wearing a Sergio Tacchini kit, which Mm. it had green and blue and some red, like stripes on his shirt. It wasn't like it wasn't completely white at all, and there were the the stripes were more than one centimeter in thickness, and it wasn't a single around. You know, now they say single one centimeter strip of color around the neckline or the cuff or this is right down the center of the shirt and then he wore his trademark black and white checkered bandana as well which wouldn't be allowed under today's Mm. rules so there must have been a period of more relaxed and then they decided no we're going back to our roots
1: by the way did you did you catch a look at the the calves on federer in this uh in this (laughs) in this picture
2: um, no, I saw him hitting with um, Andy Murray. I didn't notice his
1: calves particularly. Yeah, it's um, it's quite striking. Let me have a look. He's leaping off the ground. It's not clear when this picture is from. Perhaps it was from Halle this year, because it's not his Wimbledon outfit. He's wearing like a some kind of like dark blue shorts, but his. His calves are just like extremely ropey and muscular. You can see the veins coming out. And it looks like the knees are just like a tangled knot of uh, of reconstructed material. <laughs> yes, I've, I've pulled it up. He's looking very sinewy. Yeah, I don't think that bodes well for his his chances at Wimbledon this year. What do you think of Roger Federer's chances at Wimbledon this year, Matt? Oh, yeah. we've seen I've seen so many cracks in his armor.
2: Recently, the injuries, the withdrawal of Wimbledon, of the French Open, and then and then he played that tournament. Huller played a poor final set. Who did he play against?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Felix Oje seemed beat him the second and third sets. It looked like Federer was playing mm-hmm. really well, and Faa couldn't get a break against him, and then. All of a sudden, things just went went awry for Roger, and I, I think that's that's sort of the thing that's got people a little bit twisted and worried about Raj right now. It's just that he doesn't seem to have the consistency. He he can reach those levels of brilliance, but it just uh, he doesn't have the match play. He doesn't seem as solid as he he needs to be to really go deep or or win the tournament. But I don't know. I look at the draw and I think, who's going to beat him? You know. I mean, there's some people in there who could give him trouble maybe cam nori in the third it's hard to imagine a guy like cam nori beating federer at wimbledon uh, it's it's gonna be interesting i'm not like convinced that he'll necessarily make it
2: through the draw and you know progress to the quarters or semis but
1: if he gets to the quarters does he have, where, where does he get playing nova Novak's in the other half. So his quarterfinal matchup would be against uh, Medvedev if it held to form. And, you know, other people in that half of the draw, like Chilich and Dimitrov and Harkac, Sam Query, Lorenzo Sonigo, who's been playing well, who's just uh, defeated in a final by Alex Dimonor yep. at Eastbourne. So, you know, there's some good players down there, but it's, yeah, I don't know. I, we talked about this recently. It just I, I, I always feel like it's folly to count these guys out even if even if the form doesn't seem like all the way there you know it's still federer five sets on grass he's gonna dig deep and summon whatever he's got left in the tank so Uh, but it is it is possible he is human that he might he might just actually be wrapping up at this point he might be reaching the end of the road if he falls early will he retire that's a good question there was a statement made today or yesterday that He's undecided on the Olympics, uh, which is a bit of a shock because that's that's a championship he hasn't won. He hasn't won gold at the Olympics and seems unlikely that he'll do so this year. So that's a bit of a surprise and a bit of a tell in a way, right? Mm. Like if he wins Wimbledon, why wouldn't he go play the Olympics? But if he's dropping out early and doesn't feel like he's competitive, uh, I just wonder if there's that doubt that's creeping into his mind.
2: Yeah, he he said he's not sure about canada or any of the other tournaments um he really just cares about wimbledon at the moment he's going to focus on that and make any decisions depending Mm. on how deep or how shallow he goes in the tournament the more i learn about him and his kind of excesses i find him really pretty boring but on the court you know he's such an elegant player and uh, i do want him to stick around and see watch his decline in real time Just watch him fighting to stay being a top player i hope he stays around another year or two even and like tries to win wimbledon more and we get to see him try against against his
1: failing body andy murray has been going through that for a couple years now you know he was at the top of the game his hips started to fail he had that Theoretical retirement match at the Australian Open, and uh, you know, went in for surgery, and then decided, you know what, I'm gonna come back. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this again. I'm gonna play the slams again. It's been pretty mixed results-wise for Murray, but I, even though I never lo- really particularly liked him, I just, I love that unceasing desire to, to just dig in and compete. You know, just to get out there, and I, I imagine that Murray thinks he could win tournaments or go deep in slams or he wouldn't do it and maybe that that's a little bit delusional because i don't think he can do it anymore i don't think he's going anywhere at a, at a slam but for federer it's the, the drop was more precipitous i mean he he was just in the wimbledon final and that was only two years ago and he had match point he was that close he was that close yeah that, and that really bothers him
2: and then he had for another sure. injury and then there was covid and like and he's getting a bit older it's just slipping away at the wrong time for him when he, when he should
1: have had that that crowning moment yeah he could have gotten a 21 he could have gotten one more over his rival novak and you know yeah you know it bothers him i mean he's he said as much at the uh at the Aussie open that following year when we were when we were attending and you know he he got he squeaked through that match against uh fancy underwear lad john millman um <laughs> and you know he gave this speech where he said the demons are always lurking
2: the demons are always lurking
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's he's haunted by it now it's no longer invincible federer he's he's spooked he's uh he's mortal you know yeah jokovic has has taken away his invincibility much like he did to rafa at the french last uh the last fortnight
2: I, i've spent some time with dancers in the sydney performance scene and the way they talk about dancing and movement is sometimes they talk about having information in your body Hmm. like um all the training that they've done and all the experiments and all the improvisations that they've done it gives them it puts all this information in their body that they can draw on i think you could say the same about a tennis player and probably more than any other active player federer has the most information in his body that he can call on in any situation you know he's got all the shots and all the reactions and all the tactics and strategies Mm. he will use those resources and he will have to use all of those resources because physically he's he's not in his prime anymore so that becomes all the more important And that's the interesting thing i think about watching him how how does he what what does he pull out of the bag to deal with tough situations now Ash Barty's back, she says that the hip problem that forced her to withdraw from the French is better. Mm. Um, and she also had an arm thing that made her withdraw from Rome, was it? Anyway, she's back and she's wearing an Yvonne Gulagong inspired dress because back in that era in the 70s, they... The women were like, well, one of the designs they had is like a scalloped hem on the dress. Mm. So it's like, yeah, it's a scallop design. And, and then there's like these sort of um, indentations or like these cut out bits of flowers on the back and on the skirt. So
1: that is a real throwback. That is very nice. I, I love that dress. Nice. Right. And her first round matchup is against Carla Suarez Navarro, which is lovely, even though Carla probably doesn't have much of a chance against Ash. Um, well, I wouldn't counter out completely, especially given that Barty's coming in a little bit, uh, coming in off of some injuries. But at least Carlos Suarez Navarro will get a center court send off. Um, apparently, Ash Barty took Simona Halep's place. They reserve spots for the champions in the following tournaments, uh, like for opening day. So, you know, it's pretty much guaranteed that the last winner will have uh, a spot on center court when they return. But since Simona Halep had to drop out again, Ash Barty was slotted into her space. But the side effect of that is that Carlos Suarez Navarro will also be on center court in front of a crowd instead of on uh, Chatrier in the middle of the night with nobody watching.
0: Ah, that was a disaster.
2: Yeah. So dumb. Um, They also put Gasquet against Nadal at nighttime on Chatrier with no fans yeah um but yeah that's wonderful that Carla gets to play ash on center court on the, on the opening day in like in the prime slot right
1: yeah i think it's a good it's a good deal
2: um I, yeah, I, I think Carla has a chance but not a huge chance serena williams um always a contender at wimbledon
1: yeah apparently the last four times she's played wimbledon she's reached the final so much like with Raj, kind of foolish to uh pick against her. But she might be running up against uh Angie Kerber in the third. Kerber's starting to play well again. You know, that's a former Wimbledon final rematch. Uh but yeah, looking at the women's field, I'm, I'm looking at the tennis abstract site and you know, cuz they they basically show the draw with all the statistical projections based on their system of learning computers and um the the fa- their favorite by a long shot is Ash Barty and um, whom they give a twenty five point four percent chance to win. And then after that, there isn't another player who's over ten percent. Um, in fact, I don't think anybody's really even all that close to ten percent. Which basically is just a way of saying it's the field. The possibility space is still wide open for the women, and you know many of the players who who have been strong or have had breakthroughs in recent years on other surfaces they're sort of unproven on grass you know Sabalenka Sabalenka has had trouble in the slams everywhere she's gone um it seems like her game should should work out she's the two seed but it's hard to pick her given how much uh how frequently she seems to uh, have trouble getting deep in slams Muguruth has been hurt uh Iga Swiatek unclear how good of a clay court uh, I'm sorry grass court player she is Kennen also unclear what her form's gonna be like. So it just seems once again like it's open to the field and there's a big opportunity for um for somebody to break through.
2: Yeah. Su Wei plays Schwantek in the first round.
1: Oh yeah, that's a
2: be keen to see that.
1: That's a popcorn match for sure. Potential banana peel for Schwantec there? Popcorn and banana peels. Together.
2: I like the possibility of Coco Goff against Serena Williams in the fourth round, which is on the cards.
1: Yeah, I mean, Coco Goff, it was only two years ago at Wimbledon that Coco Goff had her breakthrough onto the main stage, like, on you know, on, onto the, the national spotlight, right? Or international spotlight, as it were. And, you know, here she is coming in, she's, she's seated 20, she's a ranked player, she's had some pretty good success. She's won tournaments. What was she? Did she, she got in the quarterfinals at the French? Right. Um, did she lose to Kujikova? Everybody lost to Kujikova in the end. In the
2: end. She had a good run and she, um, she had a good clay
1: season in general. Great. Clay yep. season. Yep. So now we'll see if her, uh, if her game continues to be truly all court. I think it's just going to be fascinating because we haven't really watched anybody on grass for a couple of years. So it feels, it feels like more of a blank slate than usual. You know, I, I think we're, we're, overlooking the fact that, you know, like on the men's side, different types of players tend to go deep at Wimbledon, right? Yes. You know, Chilich's and Anderson's and Isner's and, um, you know, the real big serve types. I, I kind of wonder if there's some shifting in the landscape that we just haven't noticed because, you know, we haven't had the opportunity to see these players, uh, you know really go at it on on grass and get their footing um you know all of a sudden people are talking about sam query again and it's like i guess sam query is barely viable on other surfaces and there truly are some grass court specialists and uh yeah i guess we'll see
2: nick curios is one. Of-
1: ah, yeah nick Kyrgios is a great example of that yeah who's Playing uh, mixed doubles with Venus Williams. Did you see that? That's cool. Yeah, it was making like regular sports news in the US, which is interesting. Like, I guess that that's what qualifies as the headline story for the tournament um, for American fans. Uh, maybe even our friend, the not-so-tie-dyed
2: tie-dyed ogre because of um, dress code regulations.
1: The white-dyed ogre? The white-dyed ogre. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um you know it's it's his surface right it's the fastest surface his um imposing serve is going to be at its most imposing
1: yeah i suppose so I, i i don't know if he's good on grass like grass isn't only about the the power right like you you still have to be able to move on the grass and i think that's you know that can be overlooked but i'm sure there are a lot of players our friendly ogre can overpower Somebody I was somebody I follow on Instagram predicted Opelka to get to the semifinals against Djokovic, and I was kind of floored by that prediction. I was like, really? Like, there's is that even possible? Like, who else is in his section of the draw? Um, you know, he's there with uh Batista Gut, who was a semifinalist a couple years ago, Shapovalov, Dimonor, um, Sitsipas. Sitsipas just he's the guy who like. I think because everybody sees a little bit of Federer in his game, people think he's going to be great on grass, but he doesn't seem to really move that well on grass. Like he doesn't—he doesn't know how to how to take those little graceful ballet steps. He'll probably be viable on grass at some point, but unclear if it'll be now or later.
2: Yep, um, and then there's Roberto Bautista Gu, he always does well on grass. The one Spanish player that's not a clay court specialist.
1: Well, I guess you could say the same about. Uh, Pablo Carreña Busta, who's really more of a hardcourt specialist, right? But um, I don't think of him as a threat on grass the way uh, RBA appears to be a, a pretty strong player on grass.
2: I'd like to see Gael Monfils at least to make the fourth round against Novak. Mm. He's 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 declining. He's losing more often than he's winning these days.
1: It's true, but his draw is actually really friendly, like he's got a number of uh, wild cards and qualifiers up there with him and the only, the other seed in his in his like uh section of the draw is Christian Garin who's yes. really primarily a clay court specialist so not out of the question that Monfils could get to a fourth round match against Novak and Gael Gael has still never beaten Novak right that's it's like one of those like tragically one-sided matchups sort of like um Rafa and Gascay. This Wimbledon's a little light on stories going in. I think, especially the way the French Open started with all of the Osaka business, it was really big breakthrough news stories right from the start, and um, and it feels a little quiet. But that's you know, it's not so bad. I'm sure the stories will emerge. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was a very dramatic entry into the French
2: Open. It's not the same thing here. There's there's definitely the bars around Roger Federer and what what can he do this time you like, in, in, like uh, quite literally the the mm-hmm. only story that was sort of doing the rounds in australia was the story about
1: ash Barty's dress and how it's a tribute to gulagong <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah it's it's interesting actually to look at the, like i wonder if you could do a roundup of like the top tennis story in a number of nations around the world like to see what people are focused on because right so you have ash mm-hmm. gulagong tribute dress And then in the United States, you have uh, Venus Williams teaming up with Nick Kyrgios to play mixed doubles, because it's not like we're excited about any of our singles players.
2: And if we went to another um, nation, what might be the story there? If we
1: went to Switzerland, it would obviously be about Federer. Yeah. If we went to Germany, it would be about uh, Sasha Zverev's joyless approach. His joyless approach, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, how he how he would be a failure if he doesn't win. <laughs> how he would fail the fatherland. If we went to Greece, it would be hopeful for Sitsipas and Sakuri. Big Greek emotion. Pictures of weeping fans draped in Greek Greek flags. It can be very
2: nationalistic.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting wrinkle to the Stephanos Sitsipas story. He does seem to really care about representing Greek pride and it's like more on the nose nationalism than you see from a lot of a lot of players most players i would wager you always you see it from Aussies and Americans a lot though you think so i don't i don't feel like you really get that like flag waving like this one's for my country attitude from american players i just think they they realize it's kind of it's like not very much appreciated in the rest of the world okay yeah maybe you're right maybe it's less so than for was it like, there used to be players that wore
2: like American flag bandanas for, mm. in like the 80s and 90s, maybe like David Wheaton. I suppose you, you don't see the flags on court anymore. But yeah, just living in Australia, you're always, the players are always talking about what it means to be Aussie and, or Ash Barty and does and Nick Kyrgios thankfully doesn't.
1: Yeah, I think that's though that's like... Um... It's sort of a function of the fact that you're watching, you know, tournaments that are on Australian soil, right? So these players are playing in front of their home crowds, you know, like I've definitely seen Demonora talk about like how much, you know, Sydney means to him and the blue wall of whatever Sydney school that he went to, you know, like all this like local stuff, but he's playing to the local crowd as well. And I guess it's true that in the US, if you like, if you have a player like, an American player go on a surprising run at a slam like Donald Young is like a guy who did that a, bu- a handful of times at the US Open would get to the fourth round and and then the news would start to pick it up and it would get really exciting and he, you know he'd get he'd get onto the big stadiums and he'd get the big support um, so you know I think the players will play to that at a certain point but it's rare to see that outside of players playing in front of their home country wherever Tsitsipas goes he's talking about Greece and how important it is for him to be like the first great Greek player and how much it meant that he, you know, he came from this humble little village in Greece.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, at Barcelona, he also, he, he, when he's getting his losers trophy, he said, um, this is such a great tournament. And I hope one day, you know, maybe we could also in Greece have a tournament as beautiful as this one. Hmm. So yeah, I, it's like probably not Greece's priority, um, hosting a tennis <laughs> tournament, right? At the moment with all the you know, European
1: banks screwing them over and forcing austerity and that's the turmoil the economies in. Right. After the austerity measures come the tennis tournaments. Yeah. <laughs> This Wimbledon's a little light on stories going in. I think especially the way the French Open started with all the Osaka business, it was really big breakthrough news stories right from the start. And um, and it feels a little quiet, but that's, you know, it's not so bad. I'm sure the stories will emerge. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was a very dramatic entry into the French Open. It's
2: not the same thing here. There's there's definitely the bars around Roger Federer and what, what can he do this time? Like in, in, like uh, quite literally, the the mm-hmm. only story that was sort of doing the rounds in Australia was the story about Ashbarty's dress and how
1: it's a tribute to Gulagong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting actually to look at. The, like, I wonder if you could do a roundup of like the top tennis story in a number of nations around the world, like to see what people are focused on. Because right. So you have Ashbarty's Gulagong tribute dress. And then in the United States, you have uh, Venus Williams teaming up with Nick Kyrgios to play mixed doubles, because it's not like we're excited about any of our singles players.
2: And if we went to another um, nation, what might be the story there? If we went to Switzerland, it would
1: obviously be about Federer. Yeah. If we went to Germany, it would be about uh, Sasha Zverev's joyless approach. His joyless approach, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, how he, how he would be a failure if he doesn't win. <laughs> how he would fail the fatherland. If we went to Greece, it would be hopeful for Sitsipas and Sakuri. Big Greek emotion. Pictures of weeping fans draped in Greek, f- Greek flags. It can be very nationalistic. Yeah, th- I think that's an interesting wrinkle to the Stephanos Sitsipas story. He does seem to really care about representing Greek pride and it's like more on the nose nationalism than you see from a lot of a lot of players most players i would wager you always you see it from Aussies and Americans a lot though you think so i don't i don't feel like you really get that like flag waving like this one's for my country attitude from american players i just think they they realize it's kind of it's like not very much appreciated in the rest of the world okay yeah maybe you're right maybe it's less
2: so than for was it, like, there used to be players that wore, like, American flag bandanas for, mm. in, like, the 80s and 90s, maybe, like, David Wheaton. I suppose you, you don't see the flags on court anymore. But, yeah, just living in Australia, you're always – the players are always talking about what it means to be Aussie and Ashbody and does and Nick Kyrgios, thankfully, doesn't.
1: Yeah, I think that's, though, that's, like um... – It's sort of a function of the fact that you're watching, you know, tournaments that are on Australian soil, right? So these players are playing in front of their home crowds, you know, like I've definitely seen Demonor talk about like how much, you know, Sydney means to him and the blue wall of whatever Sydney school that he went to, you know, like all this like local stuff, but he's playing to the local crowd as well. And I guess it's true that in the US, if you like, if you have a player like, an american player going a surprising run at a slam like donald young is like a guy who did that a, bu- a handful of times at the us open would get to the fourth round and and then the news would start to pick it up and it would get really exciting and he, you know he'd get he'd get onto the big stadiums and he'd get the big support um so you know i think the players will play to that at a certain point but it's rare to see that outside of players playing in front of their home country wherever pass goes He's talking about Greece and how important it is for him to be like the first great Greek player and how much it meant that he, you know, he came from this humble little village in Greece.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, at Barcelona, he also, he, he, when he's getting his losers trophy, he said, um, this is such a great tournament and I hope one day, you know, maybe we could also in Greece have a tournament as beautiful as this one. Hmm. So yeah, I... It's like probably not Greece's priority, um, hosting a tennis <laughs> tournament, right? At the moment, with all the, you know, European banks
1: screwing them over and forcing austerity and turmoil all the turmoil, the economies in. Right after the austerity measures come the tennis tournaments.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know, we were talking about who my next favorite non-contender player is going to be. Yeah. Um, well. I'm not sure about this, but he's he's got a good story. Ricardus Barankus.
1: Ricardus Barankus. Oh, that's interesting. What's what's the story with Barankus? He, he's Lithuanian. Um, he's never really
2: cracked the top fifty. He's sort of been a top one hundred player. He wears a, um, a piece of jewellery around his neck, and it's it's to remember um, his friend who also played tennis um, for the Lithuanian Davis Cup team. His name was Balzekas, uh, Aivaras Balzekas, and he um, he played for Lynn University in America, um, and he got hit by a car and died. So, um, Ricardus, he wears a ring around his neck for his friend, and, like, I like that idea of um, your fallen comrade. It's always there with Ricardus when he's playing a tennis match and maybe draws on that memory and the soul of his, of his friend to try and get through a match. Hmm. How'd you, how'd you pick up that story? I just looked on his Wikipedia page cause, um, I saw him playing against Zverev, uh, maybe in a lead up tournament to Roland Garros. He wears a bandana and he's got a funny kind of bowl head cut, a haircut. Yeah. And he's short and he looks funny and he was trying his best and, uh, I don't know, I just um, I thought this, this guy, this guy is not sufficiently famous or a contender or doesn't win anything, I'll, I'll <laughs> look him up. Uh,
1: yeah, two-handed backhand, that's uh, a surprising one for you.
2: Yeah, um, moving to a two-handed backhand myself these days, I, I, I have a bit more respect for the two-handed backhand. It's maybe not as flashy as the one-handed backhand, but it's reliable agassiz had a very good one and it has its place and <laughs> and roger federer <laughs> even said that he might teach his children the two-handed backhand he might choose to do that uh. as a coach because it's just easier and more manageable and more compact less can go wrong with it you know there's reasons there's yeah. reasons for the
1: two-handed backhand of course but as a matter of you know aesthetic personal preference yeah you have to go for it.
2: what do what do you think
1: Oh, I definitely prefer the single handed backhand. I didn't think I had a preference really. But I don't think I don't think the two handed backhand is ever beautiful, you know? No. I think it can be it can be powerful, it can be impressive, it can be you know, it can be sharp, it can be vicious. But it's net you know, it lacks the the beauty of the of the looping single handed shot. And I don't know, I think the the single handed backhand also just, you know, I think it's got a little bit more expressive range mm. it can be used uh to like create all this shape and spin yeah I, I guess it sort of has just ended up that i do i do enjoy people with single-handed backhands quite a bit and um but yeah like you can also see the the clear downsides there's just uh that that lack of margin it's not as safe of a shot and you know if you if your forehand is already kind of loopy and top spinny to have that kind of risk factor on on both wings is um, has proven to be a little bit difficult for for players who are who are not quite the uh, the level of a Roger Federer.
2: Yeah, um, or a Gasquet. You know, like for him, that topspin single-handed backhand is extremely reliable. Of some players, it just works, but um, for most, right. it's yeah, it's more difficult. And I I totally agree. that the single-handed backhand is it's more balletic and expressive. You know, you can imagine, like, it's the beginning of a ballerina about to do a pirouette or something, opening, Mm. because you open up both the arms in opposite directions. Right. And your chest, your chest gets big, and you're almost like you're about to, you know, like, you're acknowledging the audience, and you're about to, um, you're making such a grand, expressive gesture with your
0: whole body.
2: Yes. The two-handed backhand is compact. It's
1: tight. It's it's closed. You you get yep. little. It's almost the opposite. Yeah, it's fascinating how different they are in terms of like what they do to the the player's body. That's aesthetically very different. So, um, anyway, glad to uh, hear you breaking out into into new obscure players. Barrancas is um, is going toe to toe with Lloyd Harris tomorrow. So. Uh, by the time anybody listens to this, he'll probably have lost in the first round.
2: I mean, Lloyd Harris is a match he could he could win.
1: Yeah, I think Lloyd Harris is a better player right now. Yeah, probably. Uh, I didn't realize that Lloyd Harris's full name is Lloyd George Muirhead Harris. <laughs> Lloyd George Muirhead Harris. Muirhead and Harris. That's such an English, Scottish name he's south african yeah very very colonial kind of name lloyd george muirhead harris i love how the tennis abstract website just like will will toss in the middle names if they have them mm. you know so we have um what do we have here daniel elahi galan riveros who uh otherwise i think people know is galan daniel galan daniel galan yeah um So he's got a second and a fourth name that we've been overlooking what was it uh fritz like taylor harry fritz harry (laughs)
2: yeah (laughs) didn't know taylor harry fritz that's great yep this really changes um... i I feel like the way i mean it's i used to just look at the results of tennis because you couldn't get you know much television when you just had you know in in sydney we just had four four or five free to air channels and one of them might have had the sport on the weekends but you would never see the outside courts or you know heaps of tournaments the only way you could know what was happening in the tennis world was if you bought a tennis magazine or you um, looked in the newspaper for the results so if you do it that way you Mm. just see their names that's that's how you know who they are just through their names so for some reason I had the the name mana endo in my mind at the moment hmm. just sort of popped back and i think she was a japanese women's tennis player Hmm, never heard of that person i'm gonna look her up see if she was a real person or it's just my imagination but <laughs> i love um taylor harry fritz who else have you got who else can you um make us
1: see through the name alone Juan Ignacio Londero. I feel like maybe the Ignacio has... uh, Juan Ignacio, yes. Has has come through. I mean, this is how I know uh, Daniel Collins' middle name is Rose. Mm. We have uh, Bernabe Zapata-Miralles from Spain. I don't know if you've ever heard of that player going up against Cristian Garin in the first round. Pedro Martinez is actually Pedro Martinez-Portero. A Chilean player I've never heard of, Marcelo Tomas Barrios Vera. I haven't heard of him either. Did he qualify or.? Uh, it doesn't specify qualifiers here. Um, I would assume so. He's going up against Kevin Anderson in the first round. Right. And is given a 12% chance of advancing and a 0% chance of advancing past uh, Djokovic in the second round. Oh, he did come through qualifying uh carlos alcaraz um who's much ballyhooed on the clay is actually carlos alcaraz garfia mm. alcaraz garcia garfia si senor well they actually <laughs> they spell it with an f which is interesting i mean it's like uh García. i wonder if that's just like a yeah because garcia in barcelona mm. barcelona you know they do the th the th- on the on the c yeah yeah, so I don't know if that's the proper spelling or or what. Randy Liu could beat Mark Pullman's. I guess I feel like Randy Liu is just in there in every slam to lose in the first round. I feel like that's Randy Liu's purpose in life. <laughs> Am I wrong about that? I love the name Randy. <laughs> yeah. that's why I like Randy Liu. Yeah, me too. His real name
2: is um, Lou Hien Sun.
1: Um, so I just discovered that Layla Fernandez's name is actually Layla Annie Fernandez. Oh, Annie! I love that film. <laughs> Layla Orphan Annie Fernandez. Layla Orphan Annie. My, one of my new favorite players now, because of
2: that, is <laughs> Layla Fernandez. What about, um, Bianca Andreescu? Does she have any other names?
1: No, nope, not that I know of. Oh, not that, not that's listed here. Let's uh, let's look her up, though. Ah, Bianca Vanessa, Andreas. Vanessa, Bianca uh-huh. Vanessa, Bianca Vanessa, Bianca Vanessa, get over here, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Mom, but Mom. <laughs> plays Elise Cornet in the first round and
1: could go on to play Ash Barty in the quarterfinals yeah but uh, Cornet defeated Andreescu just a couple weeks ago in Berlin in the first uh, in Andreescu's first match on grass so Andreescu has only played three matches on grass uh, since Roland Garros and has lost two of them so she's not exactly in strong form right now
2: I'm surprised she's still still seated number five because um
1: yeah they they've kept that rolling uh ranking alive for quite some time I was actually looking at the the race um like the WTA and the ATP race on the, their respective web pages and it's interesting how different it is from the actual um from the actual rankings at the moment um I believe Vandreescu somewhere like in the 30s at the moment uh, based on points from this year so once um, Um, unless
2: she gets some good results now once the period ends then she'll drop down considerably
1: yeah I think so I mean she had that good result in Miami getting to the final so um, so it's not like she's about to drop out of the, the top 50 or anything but she's definitely not where she was and that's certainly true on form as well Yeah, she's actually, she's number 30 in the race at the moment. Uh, Kojikova is number two, right behind Ash Barty. Wow. And yet her, her ranking, like, doesn't reflect that at all.
2: She's, um, she's seated 14th at Wimbledon, but she won a tournament before the French Open as well, so she'd already moved up to, like, 33 in the world. Um... And then winning
1: yeah she's currently number 17. number
2: 17 right top 20 for the first time um you know ellen perez the the, the player that i met in
1: the line at the gift shop at uh, australian open <laughs> <laughs> right uh yes i do remember that story i can't remember but i think it, it didn't make the cut for our most recent episode right well you know <laughs> i
2: talked to a ranked Player in line, and it was funny because Ellen Perez had to. She had to buy her own souvenirs in the gift shop. She is um in the singles draw, main draw. She came through qualifying. More noted as a doubles player. Like Australia has just a really strong tennis program, and we spend a lot of money on our tennis and our development programs, and sometimes players just eventually crack through and she's she's done it she's in the doubles and singles draw
1: well done ellen perez and uh her first round match is against somebody i've never heard of clara burrell from france
2: who also qualified yeah so an opportunity there for one of the qualifiers to go through to the second round yeah nice well we've done (laughs) we've done this draw pretty After saying that we wouldn't dive deep, we've gone into Ellen (laughs) Perez's first round. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yep, it's true. We've talked about Ricardus Barrancas, Ellen Perez, and. um, Rendy Liu. And (laughs) Rendy Liu. I think that was an appropriate full draw show in the end.